welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, a Women's History Month special. We lift up the voices of Wangari Matai, founder of the Green Belt Movement and the first African woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Also, Paul Marshall, an award-winning author whose parents hailed from Barbados. Her book, Brown Girl, Brown Stone, was hailed around the world. We will also hear the voice of Toni Morrison, the first Black American woman to win the Nobel Prize. We will hear excerpts of her Nobel speech, as well as an historic interview that she did with me on Sojourner Truth. And Dorothy Dandridge, a Black actress who lent her name to civil rights struggles. First, let us hear from Mia Motley, the first woman prime minister of my island nation of Barbados. Here she takes on a journalist about the impact of colonialism. Let's go to that clip now. What a lot of Western climate diplomats tell me is that leaders like yourself also carry a responsibility. Why are vulnerable countries still so debt-stricken? Why is there still corruption? What is your response to that? You really want me to answer you? I do. Okay. Why is it that every time we talk about countries from the south, the first allegation is corruption? Last time I checked, in the USA and the UK and Europe, they're brittled with corruption, but nobody says that they're not capable of achieving their objectives because of corruption. Why is it that we're not talking about the fact that these countries became independent, having allowed those countries that colonized them to extract significant portions of their wealth such that we had no proper housing, no proper education, no proper healthcare systems, no proper legal systems, no proper across the whole street, and certainly nothing to do with building social capital like community development and cultural enterprises. And what has happened is therefore that we have spent the time since independence trying to give our people what the global north has taken for granted and has supported by the extrication of centuries of wealth to give their people out of our blood, sweat and tears. Now when our blood, sweat and tears finances the industrial revolution and the industrial revolution then causes the climate crisis and then I have to pay for the consequences of the climate crisis because of the industrial revolution financed by our blood, sweat and tears. Then I think they have no moral authority to tell me anything about the financing of the climate or about why we don't have enough. All righty, and there you heard the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. Today, we mark Women's History Month focusing on some of the voices of women, women making trouble making history. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. 
we also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Let's go to our news headlines now. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Top diplomats from the group of 20 industrialized and developing nations have ended a contentious meeting in New Delhi with no consensus on the Ukraine war as discussions of the war and China's widening global influence dominated much of the talks. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov spoke briefly at the meeting, marking the highest level in-person contact between the two countries since relations plummeted over Russia's year-old invasion of Ukraine. U.S. officials said Blinken urged Russia to return to the new START nuclear arms control treaty and that Russia should release detained American Paul Whelan. Julia Chapman has more. Western nations and Russia have accused each other of destabilizing the world at a meeting of the G20 foreign ministers in New Delhi. The foreign ministers of Russia and the United States met briefly on the sidelines, their first in-person encounter since the invasion of Ukraine. Speaking ahead of the meeting, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi told the foreign ministers there's an urgent need for unity of purpose and action. We must all acknowledge that multilateralism is in crisis today. We should not allow issues that we cannot resolve together to come in the way of those we can. Julia Chapman reporting. A bipartisan group of senators has proposed legislation that would make railroads like the one involved in last month's train derailment and toxic chemical burn in East Palestine, Ohio, subject to new federal safety regulations and financial consequences. Ohio Senators Democrat Sherrod Brown and Republican J.D. Vance are key co-sponsors of the bill introduced yesterday. Here's Brown. We know that railroad executives have enriched themselves by billions and billions of dollars in stock buybacks. We know at the same time over the last decade or so, um, they've laid off about a third of their railroad workforce. And we know that means more train derailments, less safe trains. It means that in too many cases, hazardous materials end up in the water or in the air the way they have in East Palestine. This bill will begin to fix this and hold, especially hold Norfolk Southern accountable. The legislation would subject all trains carrying hazardous materials to additional safety regulations and require state notifications when hazardous materials are transported through communities via rail. It would also increase penalties for violations. Israeli police fired stun grenades and water cannons at demonstrators who blocked a Tel Aviv highway, and protesters scuffled with police near the Israeli leader's home. The developments came as weeks of anti-government protests turned violent for the first time. In a late-night incident, dozens of police were called in to extract Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's wife from a salon besieged by protesters. Thousands across Israel staged a national disruption day. It was the latest in a string of mass protests against Netanyahu's plan to overhaul Israel's judiciary and weaken the country's Supreme Court. A wave of unusually intense Israeli-Palestinian violence in the occupied West Bank has helped fuel tensions with radical West Bank settlers rampaging through a Palestinian town earlier this week. In a late-night address, Netanyahu criticized the protesters. It's not allowed to beat up policemen. It's not allowed to disrupt the country's life or to block main roads. I understand that here there's someone who's looking to create anarchy, called Yer Lapid. 
Netanyahu made no mention of a call by his finance minister, Bezalil Smotrich, a firebrand West Bank settler leader, for Hawara to be erased by the Israeli state. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called on Netanyahu to publicly and clearly reject Smotrich's comments. These comments were irresponsible. They were repugnant. They were disgusting. And just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. Smotrich later tried to walk back his comments, saying he didn't mean to wipe out the entire Palestinian town, but only to take tough action against militants and their supporters. U.S. intelligence agencies say they cannot link a foreign adversary to any of the incidents associated with so-called Havana syndrome. The hundreds of cases of brain injuries and other symptoms reported by American personnel working around the globe. The findings released yesterday by intelligence officials cast doubt on the long-standing suspicions by many people who reported cases that Russia or another country may have been running a global campaign to harass or attack Americans using some form of direct energy. Instead, officials say there is more evidence foreign countries were not involved. A federal appeals court has cleared the way for the highly contested construction in Nevada of the largest lithium mine in the U.S. The court is allowing construction while it considers whether government illegally approved the mine in a rush to produce raw materials for electric vehicle batteries. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal yesterday denied the request from environmentalists and indigenous tribes to stop a subsidiary of Lithium Americas from breaking ground near the Oregon line. The company in the Biden administration said Further delay was undermining efforts to combat climate change as a two-year-old legal battle lingers. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. As I mentioned earlier, we do have a special on Women's History Month. And I want to start out with the voice of Wangari Matai, but let us tell you a little bit about her. She was born in Nyeri, Kenya. Uh, in 1940. She became the first woman in East and Central Africa to earn a doctorate degree. She pursued doctoral studies in Germany and the University of Nairobi, where she obtained her PhD in 1971. She was active in the National Council of Women in Kenya in 1976 to 1987 and was its chair person in 1981 to 1987. And this is from a write-up of her um, on the Nobel Prize. Um, It was when she was head of the National Council, by the way, that she founded the Green Belt Movement. If you don't know what the Green Belt Movement is, she brought forth the proposal of planting trees, uh, working, um, planting millions of trees, working with women and grassroots organizations. And this was part of her aim to conserve the environment. Um, She was involved, the Greenbelt Movement uh, was involved in planting more than 20 million trees. Some of the countries that were involved in the Greenbelt movement, 
that launched this tree planting initiative included Tanzania, uh, Uganda, Malawi, Lesotho, Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, and a lot more. And then uh, later in 1998, she founded a campaign called Jubilee 2000. Um, and specifically, she served as a co-chair of Jubilee 2000 Africa campaign. And what that was about, that was about canceling third world debt. Um, some of you may recall that uh, countries of the global south often have to go into debt with the World Bank, the IMF. Um, and a lot of people feel that should not be the be the case, that there is much more that is owed to the global south by the global north than the other way around. The world lost Wangari Matai in 2011. Let us go now to a clip of her giving a, a fiery speech on ending poverty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm simply stunned. I'm stunned. I'm stunned by your compassion, your solidarity, your concern for Africa and the poor of the world. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here tonight with you, representing the poor people of the world, many of whom who are in Africa. And on their behalf, many of whom you may never meet, you may never see, but on, your, on their behalf, I want to say thank you very much. We are participating in what is historic. There has never been such a time as this when the whole world is speaking to the most powerful men of the world and telling them we must make poverty history. My fellow citizens of this planet Earth, Africa as a continent is not a poor continent. Africa is extremely rich, but Africa is impoverished by injustices. And poverty Poverty is a, is a symptom of those injustices. So we must fight injustices throughout the world if we are going to eliminate poverty. Africa can do very much, but it has to be treated with justice, fairness. But it is also true, I want to stand here, both as a representative of the African people, but also as a representative of a person who is in the government, 
I want to make an appeal to the African leadership that they too must play their part. We want to see there would be no poverty in Africa without the collaboration of those who are in charge of the resources that are not being managed sustainably and shared equitably. I want to thank the leaders who are going to meet at Green Eagles for, the, for whatever they are going to do. But we want to tell them that they have the mandate of millions of people on this world to do what is moral and just. We are watching. I'm sure the whole world is watching. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we're now going to continue uh, voices, historic voices, women making trouble, making history. It is marking Women's History Month. Earlier, we heard a clip from Wangari Matai on poverty. Speaking on poverty, next we'll hear the voice again of Wangari Matai. Unfortunately, the world lost her in 2011, the first African woman to receive the Nobel Prize. And here she talks about her work on the environment, saving forests, and the Mutaini concept that she picked up in Japan. Let's go to that clip now. That honor and that wonderful global stage comes with responsibilities. Sometimes in a light touch, I say it is like the Norwegian Nobel Committee recognizes that you have a good idea and it gives you the global stage to share it with the world and to tell the world what you are doing. And that's exactly what happened. And so not only have I found myself in great demand to go and share the message with uh, different peoples in different continents and different countries, but also being requested to play certain roles and feeling that uh, I have a voice and I can pass messages that are important to the world. And one of them, of course, is to be Goodwill Ambassador for the Congo Forest, to raise my voice in favor of forests, uh, including the Amazon forest in South America, the big block of forest in Indonesia, Borneo, that Southeast Asia region, and of course the Congo forest. And especially at this time when we are talking about climate change and global warming and realizing that one of the major gases that are causing this is carbon, it becomes very important for us to protect forests that are standing, plant more trees, and ensure that our agricultural practices are not contributing to greenhouse gases, to the carbon especially. The other campaign that I have found myself promoting is a campaign out of a concept I picked in Japan, and this is a concept that the Japanese call mutainai. When I was telling the Japanese uh, that the whole issue of protection of the environment requires, especially for the industrialized and the rich world, it requires the willingness to reduce 
consumption to reuse some of the resources that we can reuse and to recycle what we can recycle. And because many of these countries have technology and they have capital, they can actually do that. And this concept in Japan is called mutainai, and it adds on, on to the three R, reuse, reduce, recycle, the concept of respect. And we need to respect not only uh, each other, not only our diversity, also the diversity within the environment. The, the other word that is very important in this concept is do not waste. And it's very important, especially for the rich world, because the rich world is extremely wasteful and gratitude. And we have a lot to be grateful for in the world. So to me, the concept of reuse, reduce, recycle, mutainai, that is to say respect, do not waste, and be grateful. It's a beautiful concept that I like to share with the rest of the world because almost every one of us, whether we are children, whether we are grown-ups, whether we are rich or poor, we can find something that we can do for the good of the environment. And not so much for the good of the environment, but for our own survival. We ought to really turn it around and see that it's not as if we are doing the planet a favor. It is for our own good so as to be able to survive on this planet. All righty. And of uh, the voice of Wangari Matai, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And today, rather than have people talking about these historic voices, we are bringing you um, their voices in their own words. I would now like to um, introduce a clip uh, by Paul Marshall. Uh, Paul Marshall, she uh, died on August 12th, uh, twenty. 19 in Richmond, Virginia, but she was, um, according to the obituary, a good obituary done by the New York Times, influential writer, uh, short stories focusing on race, colonialism, ethnic identity. She grew up in Brooklyn. Um, she was the daughter of impoverished uh, immigrants from Barbados. And one of her most famous uh, novels, Brown Girl, Brown Stones. But here you will hear Paul Marshall, uh, pronounced Paul, <laughs> Paul Marshall, uh, speaking about the civil rights movement and her thoughts on where the movement needs to go. Let's go to that clip now. Mr. Silberman was followed by Paula Marshall, author of Brown Girl, Brown Stones, and Soul, Clap Hands and Sing. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to begin by saying something about the two words which form the poles of our discussion this evening. The words black and white, and how, in my mind, they have become less important as a description of a man's color and more important as the description of an essential attitude of mind and heart. White has come to suggest more and more to me a moral callousness and timidity, a kind of rigidity and blindness, the childish belief that if you close your eyes tightly enough, the bad man will disappear. White is wealth without wisdom and an incredible innocence which is matched only by arrogance. In a word, it is the force in the world today which is opposed to change, even when that change is necessary to survival. 
Under the terms of my definition, there are many Americans who are hopelessly white. So that what we are referring to here tonight as the black, as the white backlash is inevitable. And it can be expected to grow increasingly ugly as this white, truly white American realizes the hard fact that in order for the Negro to participate fully in the American life, he, the white man, will have to relinquish some part of his comfort and that the system which has permitted him a privileged place at the expense of the Negro will have to undergo fundamental changes. At the same time, the word black has also expanded in meaning. It has come to stand for that force which recognizes that change, social and political change, and movement and struggle are essential realities of human existence. It is the willingness to question and reject the old established institutions once they are proven obsolete and unjust. Black is to seek a new way. The Negro is symbolic of the force for change in America today. And his demand for complete equality is part of the larger demand for human dignity and fundamental freedoms uh, being sounded all over the world. So often, you know, we think of ourselves as a hopelessly outnumbered, embattled minority, and thus tend to settle for much less than our demands, such as this present civil rights bill, which has been practically amended to death. When in truth and in fact, when in truth and in fact, we are part of a huge world community and our struggle here, part of a worldwide struggle for human rights. This larger aspect of our revolution has to be stressed, I feel, if we are to truly understand the nature of struggle itself. The fact that pain is part of struggle and tremendous sacrifice. If we are to recognize and accept also that the civil rights movement in our country has to widen in scope and take on a more militant tone. This is not to say that I personally reject nonviolence as a method of struggle, but I am coming more and more to the conclusion that there is a need now for the establishment of a nationwide organization that is far more militant than any to date. with its base in the South, where the potential political power of the Negro lies, with its roots reaching down into the mass of the Negro community, an organization with a well-planned and sustained program of action, which would coordinate the efforts of the various units under it and act in concert on a single issue instead of reacting hastily to each new crisis. An organization, finally, which is totally committed to the liberation of the black man in America by whatever means proves the most effective. Most important, this organization must be truly independent. By this I mean one thing, that it should not have to look for its financial support from the very forces it is working to overcome.
Rather, it must be both financed and led by the black man himself. And if additional aid is needed, it should seek this from our brothers throughout the world who have already achieved the first step of their revolution. I would like to just very briefly touch on one or two of the areas in which an organization of this nature would be most active. Politically, it must work to secure the vote for every Negro in this country by expanding the voter registration program, which SNCC is conducting so admirably in Mississippi and Alabama. For the right to vote is critical if we are to gain our rightful place in this, our country. Economically, there is a need to start exposing the many faces of the man downtown. <laughs> For some reason, there has been a failure, even on the part of the most radical groups in this country, to spell out in clear terms and clear language just how this system conspires to deprive the Negro of his basic rights. In addition, strong economic pressures must be applied in the forms of carefully planned boycotts and other means of economic protest. For instance, since that Sunday morning, Last year, we should have found some way to let the steel industry in this country feel the full weight of our outrage. There is yet another task, and it is one which involves the people sitting at this table here tonight and those in the audience. It is the task to establish not only a dialogue with the white man in this country, but even more so, a dynamic dialogue with the black man at the bottom of the heap. Because one of the most insidious features of this society is that it has made for economic and social separations within the Negro community. The old colonial tactic of divide and rule still obtains. And it is this separation which is in part responsible for the limited effectiveness of the civil rights movement to date. There must be, there must be a conscious effort, therefore, on the part of the Negro intellectual, professional, and artist to, to close that gap by working directly with the mass of our people and thus channel their frustration and their justifiable rage into more constructive methods of protest. These are only a few of the areas upon which we have to concentrate if we are to achieve our revolution. Then perhaps, and only perhaps, if there is still time and some sanity left in our country, and we can all accept the fact that the liberation of the Negro and the salvation of America are one and the same, we can perhaps, the tragic end of the American experience perhaps can be averted. For I believe, I have to for my own sanity, and in order to function as an artist, that the forces within a man, whether he be black or white, which impel him toward life are stronger than those which drive him toward his own destruction. Okay, and that is the voice of Paul Marshall.
And uh, by the way, you hear she refers to the race basically as men. Keep in mind, she was speaking at a time that the word man or men included uh, both women and men, although so much of the writing of uh, Paul Marshall focused on women. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to take a short station break and coming up, Tony Morrison. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Alrighty, and um, the late, great Aretha Franklin, respect. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. You can subscribe for a free podcast. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. You can check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. In the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Mississippi and internationally. I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in my home island of Barbados. Um, We are doing a Women's History Month special today. And rather than have people talk about uh, these women in history, we are sharing their very words with you. I don't know with our audience if uh, Toni Morrison, the late, great uh, Toni Morrison, really needs uh, any introduction. I should say she was actually born Chloe Ardelia Wolford. On February 18th, 1931, the world lost her on August 5th, 2029. Of course, uh, she was known as Toni Morrison. She won the um, a Pulitzer Prize in 1987. She was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993. Let us go now to hear uh, Toni Morrison, um, part of her Nobel speech. The old woman is keenly aware that no intellectual mercenary, nor insatiable dictator, no paid-for politician or demagogue, no counterfeit journalist would be persuaded by her thoughts. There is and will be rousing language to keep citizens armed and arming, slaughtered and slaughtering in the malls, courthouses, post offices, playgrounds, bedrooms, and boulevards, stirring, memorializing language to mask the pity and waste of needless death. 
there will be more diplomatic language to countenance rape, torture, assassination. There is and will be more seductive, mutant language designed to throttle women, to pack their throats like pate-producing geese with their own unsayable, transgressive words. There will be more of the language of surveillance disguised as research, of politics and history calculated to render the suffering of millions mute, language glamorized to thrill the dissatisfied and bereft into assaulting their neighbors, arrogant, pseudo-empirical language crafted to lock creative people into cages of inferiority and hopelessness. Underneath the eloquence, the glamour, the scholarly associations, however stirring or seductive, the heart of such language is languishing or perhaps not beating at all if the bird is already dead. She has thought about what could have been the intellectual history of any discipline if it had not insisted upon or been forced into the waste of time and life that rationalizations for and representations of dominance required. Lethal discourses of exclusion, blocking access to cognition for both the excluder and the excluded. The conventional wisdom of the Tower of Babel story is that the collapse was a misfortune, that it was the distraction or the weight of many languages that precipitated the Tower's failed architecture, that one monolithic language would have expedited the building and heaven would have been reached. Whose heaven, she wonders, and what kind? Perhaps the achievement of paradise was premature, a little hasty, if no one could take the time to understand other languages, other views, other narratives. Had they, the heaven they imagined might have been found at their feet. Complicated, demanding, yes, but a view of heaven as life not heaven as post-life. She wouldn't want to leave her young visitors with the impression that language should be forced to stay alive merely to be. The vitality of language lies in its ability to line the actual, imagined, and possible lives of its speakers, readers, and writers. Although its poise is sometimes in displacing experience, it's not a substitute for it. It arcs toward the place where meaning may lie. When a president of the United States thought about the graveyard 
his country had become, and said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it will never forget what they did here. His simple words are exhilarating in their life-sustaining properties because they refused to encapsulate the reality of 600,000 dead men in a cataclysmic race war. Refusing to monumentalize, disdaining the final word, the precise summing up, acknowledging their poor power to add or detract. His words signal deference to the uncapturability of the life it mourns. It is the deference that moves her, the recognition that that recognition that language can never live up to life once and for all, nor should it. Language can never pin down slavery, genocide, war, nor should it yearn for the arrogance to be able to do so. Its force, its felicity, is in its reach toward the ineffable, be it grand or slender. All righty, a very philosophical Toni Morrison there, taken from her acceptance speech when she won the Nobel Peace Prize. You heard, of course, her quoting Abraham Lincoln there from the Gettysburg Address when she talked about 600 dead men in a race war. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And some years back, I had the honor of interviewing uh, Toni Morrison, and I'll bring you a clip from that historic interview right now where we're discussing, first off, the impact of integration on some Black communities. Let's go now to that interview. You're listening to the Sojourner Truth edition of Morning Review, and we're having a discussion with Toni Morrison about her new book, Love. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Now, your story is based around a Black-owned resort that some have equated with a Black-owned resort in American Beach, Florida. And the case has been made that the civil rights movement that opened the door for integration was in part responsible for the demise of a sector of Black-owned businesses in the Black community when segregation existed. Do you think there has been a demise or has there been a shift of that sector? And what do you think that has meant for those who have been left behind, so to speak, in the the more um, the inner city areas or, or the parts that are, are primarily uh, 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 still primarily Black or and other people of color? Well, there are a number of consequences of the civil rights movement. I just didn't want it to appear so simple that everybody just jumped on the wagon and said, let's go. Yeah. Because there were people who were frightened of it and alarmed by it, and they were people who had gone to those really first-rate black schools, and they had gone to Howard University's law school or school of architecture or to Meharry Medical School or were entrepreneurs, and they serviced a fairly captive audience, which were other black people. And they were people that people were proud of, you know, the race men they were called, or race women. 
and they, but the interesting thing is that they sort of had to live together, you know, on the same street. The doctor lived next door to the sanitation worker who lived next door to the barber, so that the class division was not so overwhelming. You could see them. Then here comes the civil rights movement, which was absolutely necessary and absolutely important, but it had some losses. People could then go vacation someplace else or go to some other school or move into other neighborhoods. And all I am suggesting is that that kind of leap forward progress, however difficult it was, um, has a loss. You pay a price for it. Every group that came to this country did. We just did it belatedly. You know, there are people who have told me that when the schools were integrated in their part of, say, a small town in the South, what happened was that the best black teachers left and went to the white school. Yes. And then we had years, you know, decades of black schools begging for money. They have revitalized themselves since then. But there was a dream from schools that had these first-rate reputations because other schools were vying for that population or students could choose whether to go, you know, to one place or another. So I just wanted to complicate that story a little bit because I think some of it is still flopping around, those questions, that debate in contemporary Yes, and and in fact, I did want to ask you about that. I mean, it's it's wonderful, in fact, that you you addressed it. I mean, in love, several, if not all, the sectors, frankly, on the economic scale of society, are represented, from those who live in dire poverty, from a, a place you call in the book the settlement, to factory workers, to maids, to cooks, to prostitutes, to owners, and the clash and the interrelationship of of those sectors. I mean, you show tremendous insight into the point of view of all of these sectors, and you also show some sympathy for them. I wanted to just raise with you to just uh, compare that to what is happening in the black world today, in the black community today. Uh, do you see a change? Do you you see, I, th- I think from your previous answer, you're saying the sectors in, in some cases are further apart than they had been, and that this has been part of the impact of what is now a greatly expanded um, black middle class. Yeah, which moved out. Yeah. Moved someplace else. <laughs> <laughs> and left those neighborhoods for the people, you know, who had the fewest and the least resources. Do uh, The lawyers may still practice in those communities. They don't live there. But the problem for me was... Uh, Either or, if you chose integration and assimilation, why did that necessarily mean that you couldn't have um, the resources in black communities at the same time? That yes. Is, did you have to integrate or could you just bring the money into the schools where they were? Uh, did you have to, you know, it was never an either or situation. For me, it looked like there was one road only, and which we took, which was taken, and that had some, you know, peril involved in it. And we can still see the, 
you can still see it, you know, in neighborhoods. The authenticity of uh, the race culturally comes from the street. But the execution of the cultural forces in the academy, etc., is assimilated. You have to translate, transfer those cultural uh, icons and mores and folklore into something else so that you have people who study black people, I mean blacks who study other blacks, yes. <laughs> in order to say this is what it is, which is, I'm not denigrating any of this, I'm just talking about the shift. But I think now there's also a call or an awareness of um, that part of the cultural life of the black community that one lost, that we lost, even in the more radical days of the civil rights movement, there were people who were black nationalists who were screaming for exactly what Bill Cozy had, black businesses, black patronizing each other, living separately from white people, I mean, choosing to live separately from white people, having your own stuff. But during the height of the movement, there was the other side of it, which was also, you know, assimilation. It's a very complex thing, and I think it is the main theme of the acquisition of full democratic rights in this country. It can always be viewed through the glass, the magnifying glass, when you look at what happens to black people. All right. Uh, So Toni Morrison, uh, Vera, conversation we had many years ago. Um, She was on Sojourner Truth. It was quite an honor. Uh, Keep in mind now that her first novel, uh, The Bluest Eye, that was published in 1970, is uh, now being banned in some states. Um, removed from libraries and schools, et cetera, as the attack on Black studies uh, happens across the country. Uh, What I'd like to do now is to continue to share more with you of that interview with Toni Morrison. If you don't know about Toni Morrison's work, please look her up. I think everyone should read all of Toni Morrison. Let's go to that continued interview between Toni Morrison and myself. Finally, uh, I did want to ask you about film. I was quite struck uh, when a comment uh, that a black Caribbean based author said to me, it might have been Lamming, actually, that the view that people who live outside of the United States have of black people living in the United States is what they see on film. And for so many reasons that I can't say right now, there isn't time. That is really a scary thought. But what I'm sure is grounded in, in some reality and at least one of your books, Beloved, was made into film. I wondered what, you know, what do you think of that? I mean, am I, would I broach too much to ask if uh, the thought occurred to you about love perhaps being made into a film? Oh, I'm scared of the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I mean, about the filmmaking industry, except the fun stuff, you know. Um but it's a huge medium, and it seems to me, I think I heard an actor say, it's too big to be merely entertainment. 
But the fact is that that's what it's about. And it just gets more outrageous and more outrageous and more uh, unproductive than ever. And it's a sorry state, I think, not just the African-American films. I'm just hypersensitive to that. Yeah. But almost all of them. Right. And uh, it's, you know, it's an, uh, almost a kind of perversion, you know, uh, to see all these things that we fought so hard or, and they fought so hard long before I got on this earth in order to correct being displayed as fun, without wit, you know, and without subtlety and without nuance, just blatant and overwhelming and chuckling. Nobody went to see Beloved. I mean, very few people went to see Beloved. Wow. What a and loss. And it had all these incredible reviews and all this work by the Harpo and all those people who did it. And, and what everyone thinks about whether one likes the movie or not, the fact is that uh, it was serious. Yes. It was a serious film. Yes, a serious film based on a very, very serious yeah. book. And nobody wanted, to, and, you know, nobody wanted to see it. Although I have to say that any film about slavery from the point of view of a slave fails at the box office unless it's Birth of a Nation or Gone with the Wind. Well, that's quite a comment because on. Because uh, they are not from the point of view of the slave. That's right. That's that's quite a comment on on where we are right now. Um, would you care to to comment on on your next project? I know you always have a next project. Is that right? <laughs> I try to always have one. I don't feel good when I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I have in mind now is just so vague and fragile. I couldn't even begin to explain it because I haven't explained it to myself <laughs> yet. <laughs> I, I I do I do understand that. Well, um, I wondered just if if before uh, leaving us, if you, there was anything you wanted to say just about the situation we find ourselves in today um, as a as a community and as a, a nation. I mean, here we are, very much living in a, in a globalized world. The comment on on film reflected that the idea that people in the Caribbean region or that huge population of black people who are in Brazil, that their view of those of us living in the United States is, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, really. And I wondered, uh, given the wars that are happening, the situation in Iraq, I mean, it just, just anything now that you would, 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 would wish you had the time to say and didn't have to say, and you had to, two minutes to say it, okay. <laughs> what would you I share with us? To say, one, the world is vile. Two, it's going to be all right. <laughs> well, Tony Morrison, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. Wow, that was really fantastic. We both very much enjoyed that interview. That's the late, great uh, Toni Morrison. We want to go out now at just uh, as we end the show with the voice of Dorothy Dandridge, um, quite a well-known uh, actress. And uh, she was nominated for a Golden Globe Award 
for Porgy and Bess. Let's see how much of that clip uh, we could play before we have to dash. Let's go to that clip now. The Pacifica Radio Archive celebrates Black History Month by honoring the voices of a revolution. From the Montgomery bus boycott to the Black Power Movement to the fight for reparations, Pacifica was there. I must say I have never spoken for such a worthy cause before such a large audience. I'm not a speaker, but I have to say what I have worked on that I must say. No, it really wasn't very long ago that uh, it was considered dangerous for the people in show business to endorse anything more controversial than toothpaste. I don't know how dangerous it is today, but I do know that more and more of us are glad for the opportunity to stand up and be counted. We as actors and actresses should take part in the most important drama that this country has seen. And again, the name of the drama is freedom. That was the voice of actress Dorothy Dandridge from May 26, 1963. It was a freedom rally held at Wrigley Field, Los Angeles, where Dr. Martin Luther King spoke, along with Dick Gregory, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Wyatt T. Walker, Alrighty. and Reverend Ralph Abernathy. Okay, and we are going to have to leave it there. Um, voices, historic voices on our special for Women's History Month. Uh, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, and our board op, Gary Baca. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. By the way, there is an International Women's Day event coming up on March 8th. We hope that you will join us there. 